Uh, there was uh, years ago a church that put on a, a very special Easter program. Uh, it was a bit of a musical and dramatic presentation of that first Easter when Jesus rose from the dead. And so uh, this director was very ambitious. He decided to pull in some of the kids from the church to be a part of that production. And so he recruited a five-year-old boy named Brian. Uh, Brian was uh, very sure of himself and had a nice loud voice. So the director thought he'd be perfect to play the role of the angel uh, who would announce to the women coming to the tomb that Jesus was alive. And so he went to the rehearsals, little Brian did, and he memorized his line, which went like this. He is not here. He is risen. And so he memorized it. He was excited and Easter morning finally came. And so the time came. He was dressed up in his cute little angel robe and costume. And, and so those women, Mary Magdalene and the others came to the tomb and it was his big moment. He grabbed his microphone, looked out at the crowd and he choked. He couldn't remember what on earth he was supposed to say. And so the director very subtly from backstage whispered, is not here. He is risen. And so all of a sudden it clicked and he grabbed that microphone and triumphantly proclaimed, he is not here. He's in prison. And the crowd just erupted in laughter. (laughs) And they never forgot that Easter program. Oh, back in the mid part of the 20th century, one of the best known pastors over in England was a pastor by the name of W.E. Sankster. And in the mid-1950s, he began to lose his voice and his mobility uh, due to a rare disease that caused his muscles to deteriorate. And for him, this was devastating because he loved to teach and preach God's word and he loved to sing praises to God. Well, just a few weeks before he passed, it was Easter Sunday, and by that point, he had lost all ability to speak. And so he was only able to sit during that church service. And as the singing began, he pulled out a pen, and with a trembling hand, he wrote a little note to his daughter. And this is how that note read. He wrote, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen! But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Wow. I hope that none of us here today squander this wonderful gift that God has given us. The gift of being able to say on Easter morning, He is risen. He is risen indeed. So let's say that together. I'll say He is risen and you answer back, He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. He is risen indeed. Please take out your message notes if uh, you happen to have those. And do make sure you have a pen handy as we dive into Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. We're going to take a fresh look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm calling today's message, Why Are You Here? (laughs) Why Are You Here? And so Jesus Christ should be the focus of any Easter message in in any Christian church. And he's going to be our focus today in this message. But at the same time, I would like us to uh, focus our attention a little bit on a a couple minor characters here in the account of Jesus' resurrection. 
We're going to take a look at Joseph of Arimathea and take a look at the guards who guarded that tomb where Jesus' body was placed. In Matthew 27, Jesus' apostle Matthew records for us some of the main details of Jesus' trials before Governor Pilate, along with his torture and his crucifixion. On Good Friday, Jesus hung on the cross between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., so Jesus was on the cross for a total of about six hours. And according to verse 46 here in Matthew 27, at around 3 p.m. On, on Easter, excuse me, on Good Friday, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Translation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, Jesus went on a few minutes later to speak two more things from the cross, according to the gospel writers Luke and John. Jesus said, it is finished. And then his final words on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then Jesus bowed his head and he died. At that moment, a a great earthquake shook the city of Jerusalem, according to Matthew. The veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Tombs broke open and many of God's followers came back to life. That's kind of an odd thing. We'll have to talk about that another time. Even a fool could see there was something really remarkable about Jesus' death. Something significant about the moment of his death. Even the centurion in charge of the Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross exclaimed, Surely! This was the Son of God. Surely he was. Now let's pick up in verse 57 here in Matthew chapter 27. Hopefully you're there in your Bibles. Please follow along as I begin in verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver Jesus said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered, go. Make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. May God bless us as we read and study his word today. Well, beginning in verse 57, we have a a clash of, of cultures and traditions. At the time of Jesus' death, Rome was an occupying force in Israel. And as you might guess, they did things a lot differently than the Jewish nation did. And so we have this clash of cultures going on here 
at the time Jesus is crucified and even after the time he's crucified, you see the Jews could not under Roman occupation ever crucify someone without Rome's stamp of approval. That's why the Jewish leaders, the high council, the Sanhedrin had to go to Governor Pilate and get his blessing to crucify Jesus. And so they did. They got his blessing and he put that crucifixion in the capable hands of one of his centurions. And those centurions and those soldiers in Rome, they were experts in killing. And so they didn't make mistakes. When they were entrusted with the job of carrying out capital punishment, they made sure it was done. Well, after Jesus died, along with the two thieves on his right and left sides, the Jewish leaders and Pilate had to work together again to deal with the aftermath of Jesus' death and the death of those two other criminals that were crucified beside him. Any guesses what Romans traditionally did after taking a crucified body off the cross? Rome's practice was to take that criminal off the cross and throw their body in the dirt. After all, Rome had invented crucifixion to be the most painful, excruciating, uh, humiliating uh, means of capital punishment that anyone could ever dream up. And so crucifixion not only was painful, it was designed to be humiliating. And so that carried on even after the criminal's death. They would throw the body in the dirt. But that wasn't going to fly in Israel, particularly in the holy city of Jerusalem, at a holy season like Passover. The Jews' practice was to take the body of someone who had been killed, a criminal, and throw those bodies in a mass grave and bury them. And so that's what the Jews most likely had in mind to do with Jesus and the two thieves that were crucified beside him. Now, those Romans, they were pretty gruesome at times. When they tossed bodies in the street, they would just wait uh, for the dogs and the vultures to devour those bodies. But the Jews, they wanted to bury the bodies of those criminals. And so that's most likely what happened to the thief on Jesus' right and the thief on his left. They were most likely thrown in mass graves. But something interesting happens with Jesus' body. Joseph of Arimathea steps forward and gives Pilate a better idea. Here's what I would like to do with Jesus' body, Governor Pilate. I, I would like to take it and I would like to bury it in my own tomb. Matthew tells us in verse 57 that Joseph was a rich man who had become a disciple of Jesus. Mark, Luke, and John add a few more details about this minor character, Joseph of Arimathea. Mark tells us uh, that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. That's an interesting little fact. So he was part of that group of 71 uh, on that Jewish Supreme Court. Most of them voted to crucify Jesus, but evidently Joseph of Arimathea had dissented. Luke tells us that This Joseph of Arimathea was a good and upright man who had not consented to the Sanhedrin's decision and action to kill Jesus. And John tells us Joseph wasn't alone. Another member of the Sanhedrin named Nicodemus helped Joseph take Jesus' body off the cross. And Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of aloes and myrrh to anoint the body when they prepared it for burial. And so, evidently, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus worked together as a finely oiled machine to prepare Jesus to be placed in that tomb 
that Joseph offered up for Jesus' body. Now, the clash of cultures continued as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepared Jesus' body. Governor Pilate and his fellow Romans were in no hurry to get the job done, to get Jesus in a tomb. But Joseph and Nicodemus would have been in a hurry because according to Jewish law, you could not be dealing with preparing a, a body on the Sabbath day. And the Jews' calendar and the, the way they looked at days, remember, is quite different than the way we look at days. The Sabbath day began at 6 p.m. sharp on Friday evening. So we know Jesus was crucified around 3. Let's say he died and dropped his head around 3.15. These guys had about two and a half hours to take Jesus' body off the cross after being given permission by Pilate to do so. To wrap his body, not just with burial cloths, but with 75 pounds of, of these myrrhs and these aloe oils. And take his body down and place it in the tomb, roll the stone in front of it, and get home before the strike of six. So they had a lot to do in two and a half hours. Pilate was in no hurry, but they were because they didn't want to break the Jewish laws. Also, according to Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, whenever someone was killed for their crimes, uh, especially when they were hung in a tree in some form or another, it was required that that body not be left overnight. And so they had to work very quickly to get Jesus in the tomb and themselves back home before 6 p.m. Well, there was another issue there. The Sabbath day was coming up. So anything else they might want to do with Jesus' body would have to wait until Sunday. But shortly after 3 p.m. on Friday, Jesus died, as I mentioned. And shortly after 6 p.m., it seems like uh, the, the Jewish leaders stepped in and, and they wanted to get involved. They wanted to make sure that no one stole that body of Jesus. Hold on to that thought. I did a little research this last week to, to figure out exactly what it looked like when uh, the Jews would have prepared Jesus' body. And so I've got to tell you, I did a lot of hunting online for something that accurately presents how a Jewish uh, burial wrapping would take place. And I've got to tell you, the, the images weren't very good. This is the best I came up with. Not so great, is it? <laughs> but at least this gives us an idea. That it wasn't like a white sheet was just draped around Jesus. They were strips of linen. And so he was wrapped more like a mummy. And I like in this image that that uh, linen doesn't look very clean, does it? And that's certainly what Jesus' linen wraps would have looked like. Before they were placed on them, they were clean. But when you mix those with 75 pounds of myrrh and oils, and Jesus' blood is still continuing to seep out of the wounds in his body... Uh, you better believe that in a short amount of time, uh, those grave cloths were looking uh, pretty, pretty dirty, pretty soiled. And so anyways, uh, Jesus was wrapped in these clothes. He's placed in that tomb. And I imagine, even though it says the next day, I imagine the next day is referring to that Jewish clock. It was shortly after 6 p.m. when I believe those Jewish leaders went to Pilate and said, Hey, this Jesus claimed that he was going to raise from the dead after three days. And so we want to post a guard and make sure that the disciples don't come during the night and steal Jesus' body and then proclaim this hoax, Jesus is alive. They said this second hoax would be even worse than the first one when he claimed to be 
the Messiah, the chosen Christ. So Pilate gives them permission to put a seal on the tomb. It was probably a wax seal with maybe a ribbon. So anyone that tried to move that stone at all, uh, it would break the seal. It would be very clear that that stone had been tampered with. So they put a seal on it. But more importantly, they post a guard. Now, scholars go back and forth. Uh, were these temple soldiers or were, there, were they Roman soldiers? I think in all likelihood they were Roman soldiers because they went to Pilate for permission. And so I believe Pilate supplied those soldiers, but uh, they were there on the Jewish leader's dime. So he offered up, I would guess, around a dozen or so soldiers to guard that tomb fully armed. However, the Jewish leaders had to foot the bill for them to be there for at least 48 hours. I'll notice what we read in verse 62. It was the next day, but once again, that was probably Friday night. Well, on Easter morning, we usually focus on the group of women who went to Jesus' tomb. But when you think about it, they weren't the first ones to get to the tomb. The Roman soldiers were. (laughs) They were there at least 36 hours before those women showed up on Easter morning. So their diligence in making sure there was no way for Jesus' body to be stolen actually ended up proving the truth of the resurrection. They made sure that tomb was guarded tight on Friday night. They made sure that tomb was guarded tight on Saturday night. They made sure there were enough Roman soldiers who were fully armed to keep and prevent any of Jesus' followers from trying to come in the middle of the night and roll that stone back and steal his body. These guys were scaredy cats. There was no chance they would ever take on fully armed Roman soldiers. And so, inadvertently, the Jewish leaders and Pilate worked together to help prove Jesus' resurrection. There was no way he was coming out of that tomb unless he conquered death. Amen? Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 28 as we look at what happened on that first Easter morning. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him and they clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the others, excuse me, with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money 
and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. As we read the account of Jesus' resurrection in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's clear that there were at least five women who went to the tomb first thing on Easter morning. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and then the other gospel writers point out that Salome, Joanna, and at least one other lady was with them. And as a sign of respect and love, the five of them went to anoint the top of Jesus' burial cloth with more oils and more spices. But their plans were shaken up, literally. According to verse 2, there was a violent earthquake as an angel from heaven came down and rolled that stone away. Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. According to verse 4, the guards were so terrified of him that they shook and became like dead men. In other words, they were frozen in place. They were so scared of that angel, they couldn't even run away. That's pretty scared. God's angels are pretty tough hombres, don't you think? I am so glad that I've got angels watching over me. Aren't you? Now, here's a true or false question. Got your thinking caps on? Here we go. The angel rolled the stone away so Jesus could come out of the tomb. True or false? And the answer is false. The angel didn't roll the stone away so Jesus could come out of the tomb. In all likelihood, Jesus had already left the tomb. The angel rolled the stone away so that Jesus' followers could go into the tomb and see that his body was not there, but his grave clothes are because Jesus is risen. It's not like before the angel got there, Jesus had risen from the dead and he's there in the tomb and he's pounding on the walls saying, hey, I'm alive in here. Let me out. I'm going to die if I don't get some fresh air right away. You know, he's not pounding on the inside of that tomb. Jesus as we're going to see here in a moment with the grave clothes, the way it's described in some of the other gospel accounts, it seems pretty clear when they look in the tomb and see the grave clothes that they weren't in a big mess like most of our beds in the morning before we make them. It's not like there were these cloths thrown all over the tomb and it was a big old mess. It seems very clear from the way it's described, particularly in Luke and John, that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, passed through those grave clothes. And so, if anything, they just kind of sank onto the stone bench that he was lying on. And so, when they look into the tomb, it's not a big mess of grave clothes. They're still in the basic shape, three-dimensional, that they had been in when they wrapped around Jesus' body. He passed through the clothes, so he could certainly pass through the wall of the tomb as well. Hmm. Well, these women stand in shock as the angel is speaking to them. In verses 5 through 7, the angel says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him now 
I have told you. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a great photo of what the grave clothes look like. What I do like about this picture is it accurately depicts that this uh, tomb Jesus was laid in was cut out of the rock. So it would have been a rock similar to what you see in the picture here. I like how it depicts that there was a bench cut into the rock. That would have been an accurate depiction of what would have happened in that tomb. Uh, but the clothes eh, kind of looks like a white bed sheet lying there, doesn't it? So that doesn't do a particularly good job uh, accurately depicting uh, what it looked like when they looked into that tomb. But you know what? None of us took a picture, so <laughs> we have to imagine a little bit about what that must have looked like. Look at verses 9 and 10. We read that after the women left the tomb, Jesus appeared to them. He gave them a message to pass on to the disciples. Verses 11 through 15, Matthew tells us what the soldiers did next. According to verse 11, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Notice that it says some of the guards. Where'd the other guards go? If there were maybe a dozen, maybe six of them went to the, the chief priests and the leaders of the Jews. Where were the other six? Well, they were heading for the hills. These guys were scared to death. When their leg, legs finally did work, they were running for their lives. They were scared to death. They didn't go to the chief priest. They didn't pass go and collect 200. They just took off. They were bolting because they were so scared. But some of these uh, these guards, some of these soldiers went to the chief priest, and it says they told them everything that had happened. They told them everything that had happened. So some of these guards, they go to the Jewish leaders and they're telling them, uh, we were just minding our own business before the sun came up and then the sun started to crest over the horizon and, and then this flash of lightning comes and we couldn't believe it and the ground started to shake and we saw that that flash of lightning was some sort of angel from heaven and that angel with hardly any effort at all pushed that huge stone away all by himself. This guy was powerful. He scared us half to death and then these women showed up and they looked in the tomb and the angel was saying to him, don't be afraid, Jesus is risen. That's what happened. It scared us so much we couldn't even budge. We couldn't move. And they tell all of this to the temple soldiers, excuse me, to the, the temple leaders at Sanhedrin. So the Jewish priests tell those soldiers to hang tight for a few moments and they go and confer with their other leaders and they come up with this plan. After a few minutes, they return and they gave the soldiers, it says, a large sum of money. Well, what is a large sum of money? My best guess is it was a year's wages. In modern day currency in America, maybe something like $30,000. That's a large sum of money. That's my best guess of what happened here. They gave him the equivalent of $30,000 and the Jewish leaders told them, if anyone asks you what happened to Jesus' body, you were to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, Roman soldiers would never fall asleep on the job because if they did and it was guarding someone who was scheduled to be killed, uh, that soldier would be killed himself. And so they didn't fall asleep on the job, but that was their story. Pilate didn't seem to care too much. And, hey, they were just working on the temple leader's dime anyway, so Pilate doesn't pay it much mind. But certainly they didn't fall asleep on the job. That just wouldn't have happened in those days. Well, verse 15, the soldiers take the money. They do as they're instructed. That was their story, and they were paid well to stick to it. But deep down, the soldiers knew the truth. And so did the five women. And later that day, so did Jesus' apostles. And over the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of his followers. 
Within a few short years, Christianity swept across three continents because the fact of the resurrection was plain for all to see. The tomb was empty because Jesus Christ had done exactly what he said he was going to do. He conquered sin and he conquered death on Easter morning. He was not there. He is risen. Amen. I want to, uh, in closing, share with you a couple questions. We, we never want one of these messages to end without making it clear how we can apply God's word to our lives. And so I want to ask you a couple very important, pretty poignant questions. Question number one. Are you coming to Jesus today because you're somehow paid to be here or because you want to be here? It's kind of a weird question, don't you think? <laughs> Why were the soldiers at the tomb on Easter morning? They were there for one reason only. They were getting paid to be there, right? Why were the women at the tomb on Easter morning? For one reason only. Because they wanted to be there. See the difference? So you say, that's nice, Dane. What does that have to do with me? Oh, my friend, I'm so glad you asked that question. Think about it. Why are you watching this Easter morning broadcast today? Why are you joining us for this online Easter service? Why did, why did you come to church online this morning? Let's be honest with ourselves. Across our nation today, there are millions of Americans who are showing up to church this week that didn't go to church last week or the week before or last month or the month before that. Why are they showing up on Easter morning to go to church? Well, there's a number of reasons. Many people are in church today because a family member strong-armed them into coming. <laughs> their, their parents or grandma or Aunt Sally or whoever basically made them come to church, right? Let's be honest. If they didn't agree to go to church, there'd be hell to pay. That's why many come to church on Easter. Other people are in church today because they want lunch afterwards. Hey, you know what? So-and-so's paying, and I like that restaurant, so, you know, you do what you got to do in order to get a free lunch. Other people are in church today uh, because they want to be in good standing with their home church. They're a member of, of uh, First Church of whatever, and they have to show up every once in a while to keep from getting kicked off the membership rolls. Some people are in church for that reason today. Still others are in church today for the Easter egg hunts or for the giveaways or for free entertainment. All that to say, many people are in church today because they are, in some way or another, paid to be here. Right? In some way or another, they're paid to be here. So answer this question, not out loud, just answer this question in your own mind and heart. Are you at church today because you are somehow paid to be here? Or are you in church today because you really deep down want to be here. There's a really big difference. Are you more like a, a paid soldier who was at the tomb for the money, or are you more like one of Jesus' followers who was at the tomb because they truly loved Jesus Christ? Because they truly wanted to be close to Jesus Christ. They truly wanted to worship Jesus Christ. They truly wanted to bring him glory and honor and live for him. If you're just in it for the money, I'm still glad that you're here, and I'll be really happy to see you in a year from now when you come back next Easter. 
But you and God both know that doesn't cut it with God. It doesn't cut it with God. Question number two. Are you walking past a gold mine of eternal treasure for a few quick bucks? Think about those soldiers. They left behind at that tomb a gold mine of treasure in the risen Savior Jesus Christ and chose instead for themselves a fistful of cash that probably didn't last them a month. They were fools. They ran past a gold mine to pick up a few pennies. That's how it is when we choose money over Jesus, when we choose goods over God, when we choose the temporary things of earth over the eternal things of heaven. And many of us do it every day. We live for the moment. We live for pleasure. If it feels good, we do it. But I don't feel like doing it. Well, guess what? I'm not going to do it then. I don't read God's word every day because I don't feel like reading God's word every day. I don't lead my family in some sort of family devotion because I don't feel like leading my family in devotions. I don't come to church each week because I don't feel like going to church each week. It's not a priority to me. I've got more important things to do. I don't put God first in my finances because ultimately I prefer to put me and my family first in my finances. Well, you can say that. God's given you free choice. He's given you free will. You can choose whatever priorities you want to choose. But that doesn't mean there aren't going to be consequences. I have to be honest with you. When it comes to your time and your priorities and your money, if you and your family are the center of your universe, you and your family are your God. If you guys are the center of your own universe, you're your own God. Jesus Christ refuses to ride shotgun in your family's minivan. It's true. He refuses to ride shotgun. He's not going to do it. He's either in the driver's seat of your life or he's on the curb. There's no middle ground. He's either first in your life or he's not really in your life at all. That's kind of a hard-hitting truth, but it's truth. It's so sad that the soldiers were just feet away from the greatest treasure in the history of the world and they squandered it because they were living for the moment. And far too many Americans squander Jesus Christ because they're doing the exact same thing. We're living for the moment, all for a moment's pleasure. We sacrifice eternity in heaven. In the 1950s, Walter took his friend Arthur on a drive through the country. And as they drove through a a grove of fruit trees, they came to a large patch of open land. And there were a few horses grazing on the land and a few old shacks. And as they got into the middle of that open stretch of land, Walter parked the car. He got out and he, he told his friend Arthur to get out of the car. And this is what he said to him. He said, I'm going to build something really big here. I can handle the main project myself, but it will take all my money. But the land bordering it, where we're standing now, will in just a couple of years be jammed with hotels and restaurants and convention halls to accommodate the people who will come to spend their entire vacation here at my park. 
I want you to have the first chance at this surrounding acreage because in the next five years, it will increase in value several hundred times. Well, Arthur thought his friend Walter was crazy. (laughs) It's the dumbest idea he'd ever heard. And so he came up with some excuse and said, he's not ready to invest now, but he'll give it some thought. By the time he finished giving it some thought, it was too late. That friend was Art Linkletter. And the one trying to get him to invest in the land around the park was none other than Walt Disney before he built Disneyland. Walt Disney tried to get Art Linkletter in on the ground floor with all the land around Disneyland. And Art turned him down. He turned him down. This morning, I hope you won't make the same mistake and even greater mistake than Art made. You see, turning down the opportunity to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life is a far bigger mistake and far greater sin than failing to be an initial investor in Disneyland. I hope and pray that you're here today because deep down you want to be here. I hope and pray that you're here today because you want to draw closer to Jesus Christ. You want to follow his plans for your life. You want to bring honor and glory to him. And I hope and pray that you stop toying with Jesus Christ, that you trust in him, that you love him, and that you serve him. I hope that today and every day you will draw close to Jesus Christ because he is risen. And that changes absolutely everything. Lord Jesus, we come to you wanting to draw closer to you. Wanting to be with you. Wanting to put you in the driver's seat of our lives. Please, Lord Jesus, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for our short-sightedness. It's so easy to get caught up in pleasure. It's so easy to get caught up in the moment. And we squander eternal things for temporary things. We squander what is lasting for what will one day burn. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would stop playing with you. That we would get serious with you. That you would truly be Lord of our life every day of our life. That we would prioritize being in your word every day. That we would prioritize coming to you in prayer with every decision we face. That we would prioritize coming with our families to church each week, Lord. Because we need to be in the house of the Lord. We need to be with other believers. Lord, we live in wicked times. And we can get picked off way too easily if we're isolated from each other. So I pray, O God, that we would prioritize the things that are most important, the things that you say are most important. Do a work in us, we pray, O God. May we not squander the time or the resources or the calling that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before this service comes to a close, I I did want to let you know about one very important announcement. I'm so glad that you joined us today, and if you're visiting us, I want to let you know that we normally don't talk about anything in these services that might be deemed political. Uh, let's face it, in Sacramento, there are bills being put forth all the time that are terrible. 
There are bills in, in uh, Congress and, and uh, also over in the Senate at the, the federal level. Some bills being put forward that are just terrible. And we don't speak about them. We focus on teaching the Word of God. But once in a while, a bill comes around that is so terrible, that is so immoral, we cannot help but speak to it. And such a bill has come up in our state capitol in Sacramento. I want to tell you about briefly. It's called AB 2223. Some of you have heard about this. It's the so-called infanticide bill. Uh, Back in November and December, our Supreme Court of the United States was hearing oral arguments uh, by states trying to crack down on abortion in their own states. And so this summer, the decision should be handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court saying whether or not states can crack down on abortions. We're hoping and praying, and we've been doing this for months at impact, we're hoping and praying that the Supreme Court is bold enough to allow states to crack down on abortion. We want that to be done. That's clearly a biblical stance. And so some more liberal states are taking a stand in the opposite direction. Knowing that this decision may come down by the Supreme Court in just a couple months, many states are putting forth the most radical proposals on abortion that have ever been proposed in state capitals. Sacramento, unfortunately, here in California, is one of those capitals that's doing so. This bill, AB 2223, is not only saying uh, we want abortion to be legal through all nine months of pregnancy in California, We want this to be a so-called sanctuary state for abortion, no matter what the Supreme Court decides. This bill actually introduces terminology that allows, under certain circumstances, a mother to kill her child up to a month old after the child's been born. Now, some say, no, it doesn't really uh, promote infanticide. Read the bill for yourself. It uses very vague terms to open up the possibility that a woman dealing with postpartum depression could actually snuff out the life of her child after that child is born perfectly healthy and she couldn't be prosecuted. In fact, if the police come after her, she would have, according to this bill, legal authority to sue the police departments or any legal authorities that tried to prosecute her for her child's death. This is one of the most wicked bills I have ever heard of in this nation. And many Christians are taking a stand. This Tuesday, just two days from today, there's going to be a lobbying effort somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 Christians are converging on the state capitol building, and they are going to be lobbying against this bill to try to shut it down. And we're asking Christians in our church to be praying over the next 48 hours that this bill will be shut down. And if God so leads you, you go up to Sacramento this Tuesday and take a physical stand as well. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer here that God would protect life in this state because the word of God makes it very clear. Every child is knit together in its mother's womb. Every child, boy or girl, is fearfully and wonderfully made. And we have to, as a church of Jesus Christ, take a stand for life. Lord Jesus, we pray that this bill would be defeated. In the name of Jesus, we speak out against it. And we pray that you would keep every Christian man, woman, teenager, and child safe as they travel to Sacramento over the next 48 hours. And Lord, I pray that our congressional leaders would listen in the state assemblyman, the state assembly. Lord, I pray that they would listen and they would scrap this bill before it goes up for the full vote of the assembly. 
Lord, we pray that it would be defeated and that the lives of unborn children and born children and children and teenagers and young adults and middle adults and older adults, all life would be protected in this state for the glory of God. And Lord, I pray, I pray, oh God, that the church would stand and that enemy would fall in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for allowing me to share that with you. Uh, normally, I wouldn't uh, do that on a Sunday morning unless it was super important. And I don't know that I've ever done something like this during an Easter service, but it is that critical. So thank you for your prayers. Any questions, we encourage you to check out the websites there at the bottom of the screen, www.ab2223.org. AB2223.org. Check it out and you continue praying over these next few days. We are so glad that you joined us for this service today. Uh, we're going to have an opportunity in a moment to take uh, communion together. So if you have your bread and juice, get that ready. We'll be taking communion in just a moment. Uh, if you're not going to be joining us for communion, I sure hope you'll join us next week in person at 9 o'clock or right here online at 10 a.m. And if this service was a blessing to you, please share it with others so they can be blessed by it as well. May God be with you as you love, trust, and serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Love you.